1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And before I introduce today's guest, I want to encourage everyone who enjoys this show to please leave a quick review about us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews help others find us. I'm calling today's episode The Singularity Happened and All I Got Was This Lousy iPhone 7. With me today is Douglas Lane to talk about his new book, Bash Bash Revolution, which came out in March. He's also the author of After the Saucers Landed, which was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award in 2016, and he's the publisher of Zero Books, which specializes in books about philosophy and political theory, and he also hosts the Zero Books podcast. He's on the line now from his studio in Portland, Oregon. Welcome back to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me back on. My studio has my bed in it, so it's my bedroom studio, (laughs) but yes.
1: (laughs) You have a bed, I have a cat litter box. (laughs) It's very glamorous to like a podcaster. It sure is. The book cover says Bash Bash Revolution is, quote, a compelling, coming-of-age, post-singularity novel. I hear the term singularity a lot, and I think I have an intellectual grasp on the definition but it wasn't until I read your book that I got a really visceral sense of what it means or what you think it means. And I have to say the vision you present is pretty terrifying. Could you explain the term singularity and how it plays out in your book?
0: Well, I can explain the concept of the singularity and then I can explain how it plays out in my book, which are, I think, two different things, really. The, the Ray Kurzweil understanding of the singularity is that there will be a point where computer technology has advanced so far, the computing power has advanced so far, that it will start to, what well, we'll get an artificial intelligence and the, and the programs will start to program themselves. And a lot of our problems that seem insurmountable now will just be solved instantaneously by this incredibly intelligent machine. Um, the, all sorts of visions arise, one of which might be, just the total annihilation of humanity by uh, AIs and robots. Another might be that, uh, you know, we all get to live forever as the uh, robots and AIs, uh, you know, overcome aging and help us launch into space, or uh, or maybe we upload our consciousness um, onto the Internet and, and get to live forever that way. Uh, it's both a dystopian and a utopian vision. It's, it's really uh, all bets are off when it comes to what will happen when our technology becomes sentient and uh, changes the world for us. But that's how I think of the singularity. And my vision is one where that happens, uh, but it it gets taken from the point of view of a teenager, a teenage gamer uh, who's sort of uh, moping about uh, during his senior year and right after uh, high school. And as he's watching the singularity kind of take hold uh, and complaining about
1: it on Facebook. Why did you want to tell a story about the singularity?
0: Well, I didn't actually originally want to tell the st- uh, story about the singularity. I-, I wanted to tell a story. Well, I had two aims. One was I wanted to tell a story in which a middle-aged father could beat his son at Super Smash Brothers Melee. And <laughs> because I have a now 21-year-old son uh, who, for years, was able to always beat me at Super, uh, Super Smash Brothers Melee, uh, and I, I was so frustrated. I, I decided to write a novel where the
1: father gets to win. Because you you never actually won in real life, so you decided to become victorious in fiction.
0: That's right. It was a it was a wish fulfillment uh, move on my part. It's a little bit of wish fulfillment uh, uh, fantasy writing there. the The other more serious reason. I ended up writing about the singularity is because I want to, I, I'm, I'm kind of a wannabe Marxist and I've been, I've read Capital volume one and I've been thinking about what it would take to break from capitalist production and the capitalist economic, political, social system. And I was trying to imagine what could come along that could, conceivably really replace capitalist production and I ended up having to reach into the science fiction fantasy world for the singularity to do it Uh, but I also borrowed from critics of capitalism uh, to do it I borrowed from specifically from Guy Debord who uh, wrote the Society of the Spectacle back in I think it was 1967 where he proposed that we had already broken with capitalist commodity production in terms of uh, the way Marx conceived it, where you you produce useful commodities and the value in those commodities dictates and directs society and what's produced in society. And said he, he proposed that images had replaced commodities or the ultimate commodity was an image and that we were living not in... Side uh, what we thought of as a capitalist system, but instead in, in a society of the spectacle. So I thought, well, what if that? What if you really took that to heart and believed it? Uh, what would that look like to live inside of a spectacle, inside of uh, a, a, you know, basically where your life is directed by images and and entertainment and media, and this uh, concept of the singularity and being absorbed into. Uh, virtual reality and video games and augmented reality video games was what I came up with is what the society of the spectacle would really be. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things going on there, but that's that's why I ended up writing this this book.
1: In a recent essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books, you quote another philosopher, uh, Slavoj Zizek, to make the point that your book isn't really about virtual reality, but augmented reality, which you just mentioned just now. And if I understand your point, you're saying that the way we see the world is already colored by our fantasies, whether it's our political fantasies or cultural myths, so that this AI that's in the book, which goes by the name Bucky, what Bucky is doing differently is, is that instead of the world being divided by left and right and pro and anti-Trump, he's helping us all get along by essentially giving us the equivalent of Google glasses and augmented reality video games.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the um, fantasy that I think that he's replacing is the fantasy that labor time should produce value in and of itself, and that that we should let the world be dictated by this system of of capitalist production. But I mean, I I don't go into that in any real detail in the book. That's sort of way back in the background. So I think it is fair to say that he's replacing everyday life and the sorts of stories and ideologies and narratives that we... um, I guess that's the same as stories, uh, that we tell ourselves in order to get through the day, in order to have the kinds of relationships that we have, he's replacing that with, at first anyway, mostly retro video games. uh, So that now instead of worrying about, uh, say, getting a girlfriend, which is what uh, Matthew, the main character in the book, is worried about, you'll be worried about, you know. Uh, winning at Mario Kart, but in real life, or or getting through the obstacle course in a round of uh, Paperboy, which would be uh, one of those r- retro games. But you, because Bucky is an AI, and because he's so good at um, programming and and creating new technology, the Google glasses that you wear don't just augment your eyes, but kind of connect through sound actually to to your central nervous system and and really take over. Your consciousness, so that now you feel fully immersed in this new fantasy and uh, feel like your identity can really merge with whatever character you're you're taking on, whether it's Sonic the Hedgehog or Pac Man or or some character in a like World of Warcraft or something like that.
1: In Bash Bash Revolution, it's it's the teenager Matt, Matthew Munson's father who invented Bucky. For a certain purpose, presumably, I think to help improve humanity. But is it inherent in this system where and when the singularity is achieved, the artificial intelligence becomes smarter than its inventor and can basically do what it, it wants? So it's sort of a gamble. Is it gonna? Is it gonna be a, a benevolent intelligence and lead us to a better place, or is it going to be uh, malevolent or? or conclude that the better place for us is is extermination since we haven't been always on our best behavior as as human beings
0: I I don't think Bucky is planning on exterminating humanity Um, as to whether or not he's benevolent or malevolent you know I think it depends on how much you enjoy becoming a frog uh, in real life and playing Frogger for days or weeks or months (laughs) at a time the way I wrote this novel is really from the point of view of uh, of Matthew who doesn't want to be absorbed into this new what's called the GameCube economy and who's trying to hold on to a more traditional, um, more mundane kind of life uh, and once I worked through his story, the larger story of what's going to happen to all of humanity was sort of left open. I I could imagine if I if, if if I was going to try to write a sequel to this, that the danger would be that it would be something like the Matrix, you know, where there's a renegade group of rebels. But I I would probably want to explore uh, how human beings try to get develop a relationship with Bucky and try to reprogram Bucky rather than try to escape from him. Would be what I would would do rather than the matrix approach where you're trying to break into reality it'd be more like we now we know we're part of a programmed reality we know that Bucky is dictating our lives but we also can program we're all programmers uh or some of us are and and all of us could be and maybe we can develop a system where we uh at least have a relationship with Bucky and, and can move him rather than uh, simply be moved around by him.
1: Matthew seems to have a pretty good strategy, at least in the beginning, for avoiding being seduced by Bucky and the GameCube economy. You know, while everyone else is wearing the augmented reality goggles and jumping around in these green chroma key suits, so they can live out their, you know, Bucky-guided fantasies, Matthew is simply not listening to Bucky. He's not putting in the earbuds, and he's not playing these games. Yeah, that's not something he apparently can do forever. But do you think, if and when the singularity comes, that people can save themselves by, you know, living off the grid, unplugging, or is it by definition would that be impossible because the singularity really is 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 all encompassing, and the the artificial intelligence, because it's so smart, will will find a way to capture or eliminate anyone who doesn't play along i'm i'm thinking about that
0: um i think that if you are dealing with an an ai like bucky that uh there might be pockets of people who would be allowed to live off the grid for a while i mean the thing about matthew is he's really close to the source here he's the son of the inventor so Bucky is maybe, maybe irrationally interested in making sure that he's part of the system um, because he was so instrumental in getting everything set up to begin with in, in reality. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think that there's, it really depends on what the AI aims are. I mean, there's some visions of the singularity where what well, what happens is an AI comes along, but it's programmed to make, let's say, make paper clips. Like that's the original programming for the AI. That so, like a a paper clip manufacturing program uh, becomes sentient, but it holds on to its original goal, and so it just transforms everything on Earth into paper clips. <laughs> and I imagine a machine like that would uh, be impossible to escape. So I guess it really depends on what kind of AI we end up with uh, and what it's, what its original programming is like, possibly.
1: Your book, like a number of books I've been reading lately, is super current. I mean, the reference is, it's as if you finished the book six months ago or something because Trump is in it and Jeff Sessions is in it and the crisis around tweeting or the crises that are precipitated by tweets is in it. So that at times, I was wondering which was the bigger crisis? Was it the technology itself becoming rapidly so smart? Or was it just simply Trump becoming president? And somehow they felt linked, you know, maybe because Trump is arguably a byproduct of technology run amok, you know, mm-hmm. given the internet and social media gone wild.
0: Well, you know, it it's tough to say when you read the book, whether or not bucky in the ai created trump or not i think that's ambiguous i mean it certainly the technology the the way the digital technology has taken over already the society just in from a current you know kind of reality perspective that has played a role but whether or not the ai is responsible i think is an open question um but the way I conceived of the book while I was telling the story was that it was sort of a race between Trump's stupidity and the AI's ability to transform the society, to make Trump irrelevant. That was the the that was certainly how Jeff, Matthew's father, the original programmer of of Bucky, conceived of it is that, you know, his task was to help the AI save us from ourselves and save us from Trump. Um, and it, it definitely, the book is, in a way, a, a post-Trump book. It was start, I started it before Trump was elected, but once he was elected, it, it became obvious I had to include him in, in my vision of the apocalypse. Because one of the things that is going on in the book is that the threat of nuclear war um, is hanging over everyone's head as the novel goes along. Uh, I mean, the book starts with Matthew talking about how he dropped out of high school because he just doesn't see himself having any real future and it's not because of himself but the world that he's in so like he's a straight A honor roll student and he just decides halfway through or a little more than halfway through his senior year to drop out because why bother to pretend that he's got a future when he doesn't think he does and that sen- sentiment is sort of spread throughout the book The only one who doesn't feel that way i think is um jeffrey munson his his dad who's fully invested in the technological singularity and and the techno solution to our political and social problems
1: in the wikipedia entry on the singularity there is a reference to a number of polls i guess that were conducted a few years ago that said the median estimate among experts for when the actual singularity would arrive was somewhere around in between the years 2040 to 2050.
0: Mm.
1: But as we've just discussed, you've chosen to set the story in the here and now. Right. Is that for fun, as a warning, or because you think it really could be just around the corner?
0: I don't really believe that the singularity is coming. <laughs> so I feel... Free to use the singularity concept However I want I'm not really trying to predict The singularity I mean I, I don't know if artificial Intelligence is possible Or what that would really mean in reality I just know what the science fiction ideas are What what Ray Kurzweil says And some of these um, transhumanists think But I, I, I didn't feel any In any way obliged to stick by the dogma About timelines And I think that they keep putting it forward Into the
1: future but I don't know I remember when cell phones first came out, I would look down the street and I would be amazed if I could see like, wow, there's actually two people on the block talking on their phones. That is so weird. And then Mm. the next year would be seven people on the same block talking on their phones. And now I would say at least half the people walking down a crowded street are looking at their phones as they're walking. And on the subway train, 60 or 70 percent of the people are playing games and reading on their phones and Listening to music on their phones, and I thought, "Wow, if Bucky were out there somewhere, he would—he could find a way. I say he could be, she could be, they—you know, it—could find a way to control insidiously everything that we're doing."
0: Yeah, I mean, and so like, there's two different questions about this. Like, will we be able to develop an AI, and will the singularity happen? Is one question. The other is, will we be in a system of control in which our technology is fully integrated into our lives and we're directed by it. And I think that's a different question because we don't need an AI or some super uh, computer intelligence to do that second thing. I mean, uh, I think I read a, a, a news article or an essay not so long ago about how they developed sensors that could read people's, Thoughts And then have the thoughts move objects like, uh, you know, like it would be a radio transmission from the device on your head that would then uh, make a, a mechanical hand move or, or something like that. And it, the idea was that it would help paraplegics or other people who had severe disabilities have more, more mobility and, and, and give them the power of, of, well, using their hands or using mechanical hands. But if you can have it work so that your brain moves a machine, you can also possibly send signals to the brain and have those signals change the brain so that those signals move you. I think that's. I think they've done studies with rats along those lines, like remote control rats. And so uh, that possibility, I think, is could happen any day. I mean, like if you, if someone figured out a way to do that, to develop a technology where a sound could tap right into your brain and, and rearrange your, your neurons or the signaling or something, uh, that that's conceivably, a, you know, not too far off dystopian scenario that, that, you know, society of control could be right around the corner if it's not already here.
1: So, you wouldn't need fake news anymore to manipulate people. You would just push a button and they would vote the way you wanted them to,
0: yeah, or say what you wanted to, them to say or walk where you wanted them to walk, and they would think that it was coming from themselves because it would be their own brains that were you know, creating the signal to move their body. They would have they would not under they would not feel as though they were being manipulated.
1: So as someone who publishes philosophy and is obviously very well read in philosophy and also writes science fiction, do you think science fiction is a natural medium for expressing and exploring philosophy? I do,
0: in so much as fiction. is. It, if fiction can be a way to do that, and that's a debatable uh Idea, But if I were to pick a genre to set up thought experiments, philosophical thought experiments in, it would definitely be science fiction or fantasy, I guess. You know, and it happens all the time. I mean, you know, I, pro- philosophical questions around identity and pretty serious ones uh, have shown up on Star Trek, for instance. Yeah, the Matrix is a philosophical movie uh, with a philosophical problem in it. So, yeah, I do think that it's a, it's a natural fit. What do
1: you think? Well, I'm the interviewer. I don't have to answer <laughs> questions like that.
0: <laughs> I know, but I'm I'm so used to having my own podcast. Like, oh, I'm just answering one question after the other. I want to ask him questions now.
1: Well, I, I right, would so. think so, too. Although it, what was interesting and the reason I thought of that question was because people, you know, we think when people think of science fiction, they think of maybe science first, and they think of technology and what's going to be the next invention and what's the implication of that invention on society. And then they may think next about changes in society and in politics. And, you know, what if this particular planet was governed in this way? Or what if it was ruled by aliens with this kind of anatomy that led to this kind of social structure and culture? But I rarely hear people use the word philosophy even as you say those ideas are in fact explored and I thought someone like yourself who who is you know writes about philosophy and reads about it and publishes it might have a different take maybe you look at science fiction first as a, a, an opportunity to explore philosophy and the technology is really a byproduct of that
0: I do um think of well, when I write science fiction, I mean, I don't know about inventing science, uh, you know, inventing technology. So that's first philosophy and then technology. But when I write science fiction, I certainly always start with philosophical questions or some sort of some sort of big question that's bothering me. Um, but I don't know if I'm unique in that way or not. And and I had an experience when I was uh, in college years ago. <laughs> Uh, where I had, I had two interesting experiences along that sort of asked the same question. I, I was in a creative writing class and I was in a philosophy class. And in both of them, I tried to submit uh, the... Well, in both of them, I submitted what I thought of as fiction. But in one, there was a lot of philosophy in my fiction. And in the other, there was a lot of fiction in my philosophy. Right? So these papers came in where I was telling stories, but I was also asking philosophical questions i'm not sure that they were very good it was a long time ago but in both cases my professors were a little put off by that move and i would say that the literature or creative writing professor was more irritated than the philosophy professor like the philosophy professor said you did a good job with this the problem with writing short stories or fiction in order to explore philosophical ideas is that um, sometimes narratives in, uh, can can paper over problems in an argument and a more dry, methodical, systematic approach to exploring questions generally is a better approach for philosophy because um, you lay out the arguments very, very clearly and you don't get to use any rhetorical tricks or sleight of hand. But in, your, in this case, I'm going to give you a good grade anyway, and I like the paper. The creative writing professor... Just thought I was doing the wrong thing. It was it. Uh, I was not exploring. Well, first of all, it was a science fiction kind of story in a creative writing department in the nineties. So, but also, so that you know, he was put off by that. But also, he just said, literature is not about exploring ideas or philosophical ideas. Literature is about characters and psycholo- the psychology of the characters and uh, exploring the human condition. And you know what? I probably forgotten his argument somewhat because I was so put off by it. But I do just really remember that uh, it's controversial. to the question of whether or not philosophy and argumentation and polemical approaches really fit into fiction or not is a controversial question. So that that might be why I wanted to turn around and ask you. It was like I just wanted your validation. It was like it, I can do that, right? I'm allowed. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah.
1: Anyway. Well, I think anyone would say if you have a if it's a good story you can put anything in it you know if you have i mean maybe the the professor was saying you know but maybe not that a good if you have good character good plot everything's tight everything serves a purpose i mean i think you could probably say anything probably and explore any idea yeah i think so or the person was a an idiot uh, yeah i won't
0: i won't get stuck there i don't think Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's really, uh, I think there's a philosophical question about what is the purpose of literature and what is the distinction between philosophy and literature, which I haven't resolved completely, but just act as though I have and, and write what I want to write anyway.
1: If you could install in today's White House a secretary of philosophy and you could be that philosopher, what would you tell our current president what what is he missing what philosophical questions would you have him contemplate oh gosh <laughs> that's completely uh, out of left field but
0: i know it's well i mean no no it's it's fine it's just the first thing that comes to mind is that you know you're asking like uh you know the word the the little uh cliche pearls before swine i mean i just don't know if it would be of any use to ask him to contemplate anything uh, but uh, I guess what I would want to uh get Trump to contemplate is um the problem of the basic problem of epistemology. I would want him to consider how difficult it is to be certain of uh, ideas uh, that the and that the how hard it is to come to the truth
1: he would say it's not hard at all he the truth is self-evident
0: right and i would want him to consider a bunch of different philosophers who show how difficult how that's wrong how what we think is self-evident is almost always just a matter of habit of mind or ideology or um traditions that uh you know have been indoctrinated into us but that that seem natural but aren't I I, that's what I'd want him to do basically I would want to try to get him to start thinking and questioning his presuppositions
1: and what's your relationship to technology your book is about a certain aspect of technology and I'll note for listeners that as a writer and a publisher, you've embraced podcasting and you've been using YouTube also uh, to promote ideas in the books you publish. So you're clearly not anti-technology, but maybe you're a little ambivalent about certain aspects of it.
0: Oh, well, I am absolutely. I mean, if, if the singularity came, I would be in one of those green lycra suits in the heartbeat. I mean, I am t- totally I'm way too online. I have Facebook and Twitter, I have Snapchat, I have a podcast and YouTube, I sit at my computer most days way too long, when I don't have my computer on and I'm not sitting at home at my, either my kitchen table, which is where I do a lot of work now, or, or here in my big studio, uh, or honestly my bedroom, um, then I'm out and about with my phone in my pocket and all too often in my hand. So, um I am just as much of a plugged-in zombie as anyone. But I do, I am ambivalent about, uh, well, I'm ambivalent about it, and I'm also ambivalent about my ambivalence. I mean, the weird thing here with this book was, I was trying to conceive of a socialist utopia when I started the book, and I ended up writing about humanity being absorbed by an AI. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I'm I not exactly sure where I stand in relationship to technology Uh, or how full-throatedly I can, uh, you know, espouse some ludite position. But um, I'm certainly ambivalent about it.
1: Has it surprised you that Bash Bash Revolution has been taken by some to be a young adult novel?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't set out to write a young adult novel, although when I, you know, think about it, it does have a teenage protagonist and it is about gamers and video game culture so you know it's to be it it will be of interest I hope to a lot of teenagers um, and people who are gamers I want people to understand I guess who are listening that for the first time in my writing career the book is fairly accessible I mean my other books have been even more deeply kind of mired in philosophical questions and this one has a lot of them but they're approached more lightly i think so but yeah i was a little surprised and the extent to which it has been tagged by as a young adult novel has has meant that you know sometimes it ends up in odd places like and uh, when i went to the university of oregon uh to visit my kids the, i went to the duck store which was uh up the, it's the university's bookstore and i found my book there but it was in the kid's corner next to like the wrinkle in time and right across from some picture books. So I'm not sure. I mean, the characters in my book uh, smoke pot and and contemplate the end of the world. So I'm not exactly sure if that's where it fit, but maybe so. Young adult novels have come a long way.
1: Yeah, a lot of young adults smoke pot and contemplate the end of the world. (laughs) That's true. And it's been compared in some reviews, maybe as a counterpoint to Ready Player One.
0: I'm happy with that because maybe it will help get the book Bash, bash revolution a little more attention uh because ready player one has been made into a major movie and it's a very successful book i hadn't read ready player one when i wrote the book but i had but i was aware of it so i mean i it was sort of an influence on the book just in the in the sense that it was in the zeitgeist you know out there uh uh, but I'm not unhappy with the comparison. There are a lot of things that are similar about the two books. Like the retro quality is sort of in both. Like I, because of my age, probably more than anything, turned to sort of old school video games for a lot of the references in my book. Although, you know, today's teenage gamers sort of are nostalgic for that those games, just like I am, weirdly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting comparison. I think the video game culture is... Uh, More important than maybe people think and I do think that the books are different in the way that I wrote about in the uh, LA review of books, but Because my book is different and almost in in opposition to ready player one in some ways It does mean that there's uh, there's a lot of commonality between the two stories
1: Well, What's the main point of opposition for people who aren't going to read your essay in? uh, the Los Angeles review of books Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the main point of, of opposition would be that Ready Player One imagines society as it is now, uh, only with virtual reality dominating it. Whereas my book uh, imagines how virtual reality could supplant or replace supplant or replace uh, the current society. That I have actually more faith. And the, the ability for technolo- technology, at least in this book, more faith in the ability of technology to truly transform society rather than be uh, some sort of supplement
1: to, to the capitalist system. Great. Thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Thank you for, for
1: having me. I've been talking to Douglas Lane, author of Bash Bash Revolution, which came out a couple months ago from Nightshade Books. For more author interviews, check out newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction show link or subscribe to the New Books and Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Don't forget to leave a review if you've liked today's show. I'm Rob Wolf. You can find me on Twitter at Wolfbooks. Thank you so much for listening to today's show.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy.